Well, if you've got your copy of a New Testament, I encourage you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. We're going to begin reading at verse 50. This is the very end of Luke's Gospel. And as I was preparing this week, um, the joy and the wonder and the amazement of this passage and this story uh, I was tempted to just read the story and sit down and go to singing and go to the table, but you're not going to get off that easily. Um, some wonderful truth here today, as, as we already have mentioned, uh, we've just come out of Holy Week and Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then on Good Friday, we looked at the agony of the cross and the crucifixion. But then Easter morning burst forth with joy and hallelujahs at the reality of the empty tomb and resurrection. And we go about from Easter Sunday to Monday to Tuesday, Wednesday in the week and stresses and drama and busyness and life sometimes gets in the way or fills into the margins of our hearts. But most of the Gospels, with the exception of Mark, don't end at the resurrection. Because it's not the end of the story just yet. And so I want us to look at the story of the ascension and to remind us all this morning that the ascension of Jesus is no less important than Easter. Not only for Jesus' ministry, but for us as believers today. And so let's take a look and give attention to God's word, beginning in verse 50 of Luke 24. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Like all good endings in literature... This ending is truly a beginning. The ascension takes place just ten days before the disciples would receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in the book of Acts and begin to change the world. And Jesus' last message to them in Luke 24 had been what we know and call the Great Commission. It was a charge that at the time must have seemed overblown, And even impossible. That these twelve ordinary men, these nobodies, these men who were cowards, these men who were fishermen and dirty, these men who had no money or prestige or renown, were being tasked to take the story of Jesus to the whole earth, to its utter ends. No other dying philosopher had ever given such an all-encompassing charge to his followers, nor any world conqueror. But Jesus wasn't dying. He was ascending to the right hand of his Father, and he had this idea that it was good that he leave, that it was necessary that he go away. There's so much in this passage that even though it's a few verses, we don't have time to look at everything. But one thing I want to focus our attention to before we go to the Lord's table this morning 
is the reaction of the disciples. What it meant for them and what it means for us as well. Because if we're not careful, we could run right through these short verses and miss something truly amazing. So let's look again uh, at our text. Look at verse 52. Now, Jesus has been with his disciples for three years. And these men had left everything to follow him. They left their homes, they left their families, they left everything they knew because they believed and trusted and were caught up in Jesus of Nazareth. And now he goes away. He leaves them. They've been left like orphans in the midst of an angry world. And what's their reaction? What would we expect their reaction to be? Verse 52 says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. It's shocking. Their master has just left. He's gone away. And they're rejoicing. Now, that wasn't their first reaction when Jesus had initially told them that he was going away, was it? Let's turn over a few pages in our New Testament to John chapter 16. And look, beginning at verse 16, this is when Jesus first announced to them a few months before his crucifixion, resurrection, that he would go away. And let's see what the response of the disciples was. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? They're confused. They're afraid. They're disappointed. They don't get it. We do not know what he is talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Listen to this. And no one will take your joy from you. The worst thing that Jesus could have told his disciples at that point in his ministry was that he was going to leave them. That he was going away. They couldn't understand what he was saying. And that his leaving could have any redemptive effect. You're saying it's better that you go, Jesus? You're saying it is good that this happens? Are you crazy? They're afraid. They're scared. They're disappointed. And you know, we get this, don't we? We understand this. I mean, who among us wouldn't wanted to have seen Jesus in the first century in his earthly ministry change water into wine, to heal the sick, to raise the dead. Oh, if we could have been there and seen with our own eyes, that would have been better. 
or that would have been more encouraging, or my faith would have been strengthened, or I could trust Jesus more if I somehow was there and had seen. But Jesus says, no, it's better that I go away. And we understand as well, when we think of the trials of our own loved ones leaving us through death. Jesus isn't dying here, he's ascending. But we understand something of the confusion and pain and struggle, don't we? But somewhere between that explanation in John 16 and the actual event here in Luke 24, their whole demeanor changed. They're not afraid. They're not discouraged. They're filled with worship and joy. How does that happen? What took place? What made the difference? Well, what I want us to look at this morning is figuring out why. They now understood by the end of Luke why he went and to where he went. And that's what I hope we'll see this morning in just our short time. I want to talk about five reasons the disciples were filled with great joy and worship. And how that same joy can be true of us today. The first, uh, the disciples had great joy because this event in and of itself was glorious. It was truly glorious. Now Luke's gospel is not the only place in the New Testament that we have recorded um, the ascension. He also records it in his other book of the Bible, the book of Acts. So if you're thumbing through with me, let's turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Now you notice it's the same author, the same event, but there's a few details here that are just a little bit different. Not that these accounts contradict each other, but sometimes authors will emphasize certain things of an event for different reasons. But beginning in verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So you notice some of the differences. First of all, In Luke, it just says that he was taken away, but it doesn't tell us how he was taken away. And in Acts, Luke says he was taken away in a cloud, which was a familiar um, image in the Old Testament of the very glory and protection and deliverance of Almighty God. The Shekinah cloud, which led Israel out of captivity and protected Israel from Egypt and Pharaoh's army, which chased after them, led them through the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And that same cloud, which represented the very glory and weight of the Almighty, is now escorting King Jesus to his throne. And they were eyewitnesses to it. They were amazed by it. They're staring up into the sky. And the two angels, the men dressed in white, say, why are you looking up? Well, we know why they're looking up. They're amazed at what they had just seen. This was glorious. This was beautiful. Jesus himself in John 17 prayed in his high priestly prayer. He prayed to the Father and said, Father, glorify me 
return to me the glory that we shared from before the foundation of the world. Jesus had temporarily laid aside that glory. He was cloaked as a physical human being on this earth when he walked around. And now he gets the glory back. Now the Father is glorifying the Son in a spectacular way. And the disciples were excited. They were filled with joy. He's got the glory back. The ascension was part two. The resurrection being part one of his return from the depth of death to the height of glory. The disciples had joy because they knew the humiliation was over. The God-man had become the eternal king. And as one commentator says, because Jesus is a man, his physical body is alive and is seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't have time to go into this morning where that would be. It's another dimension, not just up in the sky. But it is at the right hand of the Father. This commentator says, the dust of earth now sits on the throne in heaven. It's absolutely glorious. The royal chariot was sent for Jesus of Nazareth. He did not leave his own, but his father acted in taking him back, just as he has acted in raising him from the dead. Hebrews 1, 3, and 4 says about Jesus, and you almost have to slow down when you read Hebrews 1, because you could take your breath away. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. They had joy because it was glorious, but they also had joy because Jesus had blessed them. Jesus had blessed them. Secondly, now Luke tells us that the moment of his ascension was not after his blessing, but it was during, it was right in the middle. Jesus lifted up his hands and while he was blessing them, not after he had finished, but while he was blessing them, he was taken away. J.C. Ryle says this is significant. It was intended to assure them of what he would yet do. That after he left the world, he came on the earth to bless, not to curse. And in blessing, he departed. He came in love, not in anger. And in love, he went away. He came not as a condemning judge, but as a compassionate friend. And as a friend, he returned to his father. Therefore, let our souls lean on the gracious heart of Christ. If we know anything of true religion. Jesus was giving a parting benediction and a farewell gift. The pronouncing of a benediction is an ancient and honorable tradition. It was meant to reassure God's people of the forgiveness of sins. When Aaron was first ordained as a high priest in Israel, the text says he lifted up his hands toward the people and he blessed them. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Now when Jesus blessed his apostles, he too is serving, not as just another high priest, but as the final high priest for the people of God. Now blessing and benediction always followed 
in the Old Testament, it always followed a sacrifice and an atonement for sin. Never preceded it, but it followed it. And here Jesus, as he's blessing them, he's already died. He didn't offer a sacrifice of a lamb. He was the lamb. He had sacrificed himself on the cross on Calvary. And when he raises his hands, those hands bear the print of the nails, which testified the cry of Good Friday. It is finished. Your sins are forgiven. God loves you. It is done. He's pronouncing and he indeed himself has become their benediction. Jesus' ascension means the forgiveness of sins. Now, Now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, he is able to be our advocate at the throne of God's justice daily pleading that the eternal judge will have mercy upon us. He is our defense attorney, so to speak. And every time he lifts his hands in the courts of heaven, he pleads the pardon that the price of our guilt is fully paid. This is a cause for joy. At the end of each service, when a pastor gives a benediction, we don't raise our hands to just somehow be, isn't this quaint or sweet or nice? Every time you see a pastor raise his hands at the end of a service and give a benediction, it's not magic. It's the imparting of true blessing. It's the reassurance and announcement that God loves you, that you are forgiven, that you are His. And He lives in heaven and is seated at the right hand right now And that's true. And you can now leave this place in hope and in joy. Not in discouragement. Not in fear. Regardless of what you face out there. But thirdly, the disciples had great joy because they knew Jesus would come back. They knew He'd come back. They had been with Him for a while now. But now because of His ascension, they were assured that they would be with Him forever. Ascension promises that Jesus will one day come back. The witness and the testimony of the book of Acts, the two angels say, He'll return just as He left. won't be private for just the disciples and apostles, but it'll be incredibly public. But until then, even until then, He is now closer than ever to us. Think about this for a second. When Jesus was on the earth, he was limited physically just by his location. He would be in Galilee, or he was preaching in Bethlehem, or he was ministering in Jerusalem. He couldn't be in more than one place in one time. But now Jesus can be everywhere spiritually, not physically, but spiritually. He's able, it's how he's able this morning to be present in this meal that is set before us. He sends the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at in a moment. But you know where Jesus dwells? Not only at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, but he dwells in your heart for those who are his own by faith. 
Jesus in his earthly life was with his people. But now because of the ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit, he's in his people. He's closer to his people than ever before. That's the great beauty of the progress of redemptive history. It's that our God cannot get close enough to his people. He creates the world. He calls it all good. and We rebel. Then he creates a family and a nation. He dwells in the tabernacle right in the midst of them. And then he dwells in the person of one of our own flesh. Jesus of Nazareth, and now by the power of the Holy Spirit, He dwells in our hearts. Not in your house, not in this house, not in your checkbook or your reputation, but in your heart. One commentator said He departed from us in order to draw closer to us. And it seems like a contradiction, but it's not. He loves us. and He is with us. And that truth tells us this morning and reminds us that who we are, ultimately, who we are is not what we do. Whether either in success or failure. And who we are is not what people say about us. Either in praise or in scorn. And who we are, ultimately, is not what we have or what we don't have. Who we are is a child of God in Jesus Christ and Christ who lives in us. That's who you are. Now that has a consequence and effect and result of all those other categories. But our identity is grounded as the children of God. And the ascension makes it possible. The ascension makes it possible. You're His. You can stop pretending. You don't have to be something you're not. You don't have to impress anybody. You don't have to pretend like you got it all together. This is a church. Are you messed up? So am I. Congratulations. We've got jackets. It's called membership. We don't have to pretend anymore. Because we're His. And because Jesus has lived for us and He has died for us and He has ascended for us. And He is living and ruling and reigning in this very moment of time for us and for His glory. The disciples knew this. and They had great joy. You know, a moment ago, I mentioned that sometimes we struggle It's the death of a loved one. And it's natural and good that we do. We cry at funerals. And it's good that we cry. Our Lord himself cried at the death of Lazarus. Which is so amazing, by the way. That's a whole other sermon. But he knows he's going to raise Jesus. Or he knows he's going to raise Lazarus in a moment. And yet Jesus is weeping. So it's good that we weep. But for the disciples, Jesus' ascension is essentially like a loved one leaving us. And again, Jesus isn't dying. I don't mean to confuse anybody this morning. But the disciples will never see him again physically in this life. Their master, their ruler, their Lord. They're never going to see him again. And again, it makes that response so amazing. They worship him. 
And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. It's okay. There's nothing to fear. There's nothing to hide from anymore. They're no longer meeting in closed doors. Remember when Jesus appears at his resurrection? Where are they at? They're huddled. They're afraid. People could kill us. No, they're daily now in public. They're in the temple. They're praising God. What's made the difference? The resurrected Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God Almighty. He is now ruling. He is now reigning. So he is with us forever. But Jesus has gone, and they must let him go, the angels tell the apostles. Staring into the sky won't bring him back. He will return in his own good time, and the apostles have to get on with their witness. That brings us to our fourth cause for joy. The disciples had great joy because they knew they had a job to do. They knew they had a job to do. They had been commissioned. Matthew's gospel records it. Luke's gospel records it. And again, this was a monumental task. Monumental task. By the way, it's the same task we all have too. But when you first hear it, again, considering the circumstances, these are 12 nobodies. These are 12 cowards. These are, they've got no fame They've got no connections, no network, and yet they've now got to change the world. How would you have joy? I don't know about you, but I would start to get a little anxious and worried. How are we going to do this? They had joy because they knew they were about to receive the power and the strength to do it. Jesus had explained to his apostles that he was going away in order that he might send another comforter. You might have heard a word and If you've got a study Bible, it might have a note talking about the paraclete. That word paraclete means comforter or another comforter. Not just the Holy Spirit. Jesus also is a paraclete in the comfort that he offers. But he's going to send another comforter. Now, the origin of that word for paraclete and comforter doesn't mean like we usually think in our own modern context when we think of comfort. When I say, are you comfortable, what am I usually asking? You know, are you sitting in your, your chair okay? Are you wear, wear comfortable clothes. Or um, are you comfortable? Are you okay? Are you relaxed? Are you at peace? But the word here for comfort has a more uh, nuanced idea than this. It means strength and power. You shall be my witnesses, Jesus says in Acts, after the Holy Spirit comes. I'm going to send my comforter not to just sit around and say, Don't worry, it's all okay. But I'm going to give you the power to do it. You're not going to have to do this on your own. You don't have to fulfill this commission by your own strength. In fact, you can't. You can't. Jesus has ascended so that Pentecost can take place. So the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one who will empower this mission, And this message to go forth can truly happen. They'll take it to the utter ends of the earth. And in so doing, it's going to require a strength and a power greater than our own. You and I can't do it either on our own. 
I'm sure there are many of you here this morning who are facing all kinds of tasks, all kinds of burdens, all kinds of of hills that are set right in front of you. And you might be feeling this is too big. I can't do it. And guess what? You can. But it's okay. Because the same Holy Spirit which empowered Pentecost, Peter and James and John, these guys are so bold in the book of Acts. And yet they were so cowardly and so foolish in the Gospels. What changed? The Holy Spirit now was upon them and in them and empowering their mission and their message and their evangelism. And so too, you and I can't do it. But we can do all things through Him who gives us strength. We still have work to do. We still have tasks to do. We still are called. This is not just about laying back and waiting for Jesus to come back one day. We're people on a mission. The New Testament uses all kinds of imagery of athleticism and running marathons, of military language and battles and putting on armor. This is not a passive faith. Yet, the strength and the power doesn't come from pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't have faith in the strength of our own faith. We have faith in the object of our faith, which is the ascended and ruling and reigning and coming again King, Jesus of Nazareth. The God who was slain, the Lamb, has arrived at the throne and been given dominion and power and authority over the whole earth. Talk about comfort. Who's in control of your life? We struggle because we try to control our lives. Who's in control of the mess that our world is in right now? Jesus Christ is. No ruler, no power, no no prince. Anybody. Jesus is in charge and in control. He's not just a rabbi walking around Galilee anymore. He is the Lion of Judah. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And not one ruler can rule in this world without authority that is first given to him by Jesus Christ. No one in no country or land can rule unless Jesus allows it. And this great King and head of the church has taken possession of a great inheritance that will never be destroyed. And he is preparing a place for you and me. That's why he left. That's why he went. John 14 says, let not your hearts be troubled. Because if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and take you to where I am. Jesus is ascended so that we can have a place to go home to one day. He's preparing a place for us even now. And this reality gave the disciples courage and empowered their ministry, and filled them with great joy. And fifthly, the disciples had great joy because Jesus' ascension means that He now lives to intercede for us. What does it mean that Jesus is our intercessor? It means He prays for us. He prays for His children. We all know, don't we, the strength and encouragement and comfort that it is when a family member or a friend or someone comes up to us and lets us know that they are praying for us. We've all gone through struggles and trials and we know what a great hope it is to know that there are people praying for you. 
Jesus, as the ascended king at the right hand of God, is also assuming his identity as a great high priest. And you know what he does? He prays for you. I think that's a truth and reality that is too neglected um, by us today. Uh, We don't think about and meditate as much as we should on the beauty of this reality. The night before Jesus' death, he gathered with all of his disciples in the upper room. And he had many conversations and talked about the one who would betray him. He talked about where he was going. He instituted the um, Lord's Supper. But then when he's talking about the one who would betray him, Peter, who I love Peter, love all the disciples because they're they're just like I am. And uh, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I would never leave you. I would, surely it's not me you're talking about. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, three times, you're going to deny me. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, Peter. But I am praying for you that when you turn, you will strengthen the brothers. Satan wanted to destroy the Apostle Peter. And Jesus says, Peter, I'm praying for you. It didn't happen. Peter wasn't destroyed. He did deny the Lord, but he was preserved. Not because of Peter's strength, because Jesus was praying for him. And Jesus is praying for you, and Jesus is praying for me. When we don't know what to pray, when we don't know how to pray, And when our hearts just groan within us, Jesus understands. And Jesus pleads our case and prays for us at the right hand and in the heavenly tabernacle. That same Jesus is in heaven today interceding for you and for me. And he carries his people through this intercession. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that amazing? Jesus lives, why? Hebrews 7.25 says, to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to pray for you. To pray for me. That's enough to fill us with great joy and hope and encouragement. There's more we could say. But Luke never lets us forget throughout his whole gospel that the heart of the believer's walk with the Lord is joy. The disappearance or ascension of Jesus does not bring mourning or sadness. What does it bring? It brings joy and worship. The church has heard the resurrection story. And as we move to the table... I pray that the words of a brother in Christ from thousands of years ago, a man by the name of Leo the Great, would be true of us today. He wrote, Let us exalt, dearly beloved, with worthy joy, and be glad with a holy thanksgiving. Today we not only are established as possessors of paradise, but we have even penetrated the heights of the heavens in Christ. You are a possessor of paradise and penetrated the heights of heaven 
Not because you're special. But because Jesus loves you. And Jesus lives in you. And Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God Almighty for you. And anyone who knows this same Jesus knows the same joy of the disciples. So the question this morning is, do you know him? Do you have that same longing? Do you have that same gratitude? Are you compelled to worship and adoration? Are you filled with great joy? And if you don't know him, you can. He offers himself to us today. You can stop pretending, you can stop striving, you can stop struggling and try to have it all and be it all and do it all on your own and simply surrender to His Lordship and to His mercy. Say, I give up. And to receive His forgiveness. So when Jesus cries out, it is finished. For you it really is. The hope of the resurrection and the crowning exclamation point of the ascension can be your joy today as well. So let's close in prayer as we head to the table. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for coming to this earth and living for us, living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die. And you defeated death Not even the power and the gates of hell can prevail against your bride, the church. Those of us today who may not know you, we pray your Holy Spirit would invade their hearts. Would quicken them. Replace their heart of stone with a heart beating of life. And for those of us who do know you, we pray that we would be renewed and encouraged that the hope of the ascension, that you live for us, that you pray for us, and that you're coming back to us, would fill us with great joy and great hope. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.